Amen. You may be seated. And I invite you to join me now in taking your Bibles, either your personal Bible or a copy of the Pew Bible, turning with me to our passage this morning, which is Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 19. So Proverbs 6, verses 1 through 19. And right now, Lord willing, the plan is we will spend a couple, few more weeks in Proverbs. Of course, it's just meant to be a summer study, and then at some point after Labor Day, Labor Day, we're going to begin our series in the book of Nehemiah. Now, originally, I wanted to do Ecclesiastes, but for a, a few reasons, we're going to look at Nehemiah, and then, uh, again, Lord willing, in the new year, go look at Ecclesiastes. Uh, but this morning, we are continuing in our study of uh, this book of God's wisdom, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 19. So hopefully you have found it in your Bible. Let me pray for us as we come now before God's word together. And Lord, we, we come to you now and um, it's easy for us to be distracted. It's easy for us to be thinking about other things. But through your spirit, may we be convicted that we are hearing your voice. Not just my voice, but we're hearing your voice and your word. And that you have called and equipped me to explain what you are telling us. So may I have only listened to you this week, O Lord, as I put this together. May your spirits be at work in me, even through the preaching of this, to only point to what you say. And may your people only hear what you want us to hear. And may in all of this we be pointed to Christ, the one who this word is all about. Every word in your Bible points us to Jesus, so may that be the ministry that is done this morning. We praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 19, and we will stand together for the reading of God's word this morning. So please join me in standing now. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep, and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. And go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. A perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly, in a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. 
very talked about this morning with the children. I imagine that for many of us when we were younger, or if you're younger, it's happened to you here recently, but someone has asked us what we want to be when we grew up. Some kind-hearted, well-meaning adult in our life at some point got down our level and said, well, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'm sure we all had a good answer, maybe even a fanciful answer to it, like being a lifeguard. I don't know where that came from. But maybe you had the answer of, I want to be a fireman, or a policeman, a doctor, a nurse, a pro football player, a pro baseball player, a pro basketball player. And when I was asked that question, I said I wanted to be an astronaut. My dad probably remembers this and can tell you about it, but I... Being a child of the 80s, I fell in love with NASA and the space program, watching the space shuttle take off and, and see the footage from space. And I always had this dream of going to Huntsville, Alabama, to, to the space camp there. And I was so, and so enraptured with it. My third grade teacher at the front of my yearbook wrote a note that said, uh, Jamie, I was called Jamie when I was younger, Jamie, I know uh, when you get older, I'm going to hear about you being an astronaut in outer space. Ironically, as I got older, I developed a fear of flying. And I'm not very smart. So yeah, I don't fear of flying, I'm not very smart, and here I am grounded, never achieving what I wanted to be when I grew up. What is it you wanted to be when you grew up? Well, Solomon takes that question here, and he asks it of his son, but he switches it around a little bit. He puts a twist to it. He doesn't ask his son, son, what is it you want to be when you grow up? He asks his son, son, what do you not want to be when you grow up? What do you not want to be when you grow up? And in the context of this book, where he's really asking his son, what does every wise Christian not want to be in their lives? And that's the question behind our passage this morning. That's the question behind Solomon through the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit is asking his son and therefore it's asking us what is it as wise Christians that we do not want to grow up to be? And that's a good question to ask ourselves, isn't it? We can think of the positive side of it, right? What do you want to be when you grow up? But sometimes we need that negative slant on it. What is it you not want to be? What is it you need to avoid in your life? And that's part of our growth as Christians and growth as in wisdom. Our growth as we are changed more and more into the image of Jesus. What is it we do not want to be? And that's part of the mission of the church. We come to church because we want to grow and change. We want to grow and change into this direction. And so we don't grow and change into this other direction. We come here because we want to know as much about God as he will tell us. And we want to know as much about ourselves as he will tell us about ourselves. And so here in our passage, we find God's wisdom for our growth and change about what we do not want to be. That we, as Christians who are growing God's wisdom, what we do not want to be. And what we also find here with Solomon, at least in this passage, is that he is a good ARP church member. Because he has taken this and he's broken it down into three types. As you all know, a good ARP sermon always has, good, always has three points to it. So he has given us a readily laid out three-point sermon. What is it we not want to be like? 
We don't want to be like the foolish helper. We don't want to be like the lazy man. And we don't want to be like the worthless person. You may want to be a fireman, a policeman, an astronaut, a lifeguard, whatever it may be. But you do not want to, as a wise Christian, to be foolish, lazy, and worthless. And then the section concludes with the treatment as, as, as a passage that's familiar to many of us of seven characteristics of bad men in general. We'll begin at the first point by looking that we don't want to be foolish, a foolish helper. Look again at verses 1 through 5. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. If you were to go out in the church and in the streets and you were to ask people to name the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Remember this, this summer at VBS we learned it's not plural, it's not fruits, it is fruit, singular of the Holy Spirit. That These are characteristics from God in the Spirit that Christians are to be known by. If we were to go out and ask people to name the fruit of the Spirit, some significant portion would at least be tempted to include nice in that list. Love, joy, peace, patience, niceness. But we know that's not in the list. But for many, being a Christian means being nice. And really being nice in the ilk of almost foolishly, stupidly nice. The sort of nice where you're easily taking advantage of because we have to always turn our cheek. It's always better to be nice than to be mean. So we become foolishly nice and we're easily taken advantage of. Now there's a, a, a main, well, the secondary character, kind of operate as a main character somewhat on the show, The Simpsons. I know it isn't everyone's cup, a cup of tea, but there's a character on the show named Ned Flanders. He's a neighbor to Simpsons and he's a Christian. And part of his Christian nature on the show is that he is so nice that he is always easily taken advantage of, especially by his, his neighbor, Homer Simpson. A number of storylines taking place of how Homer is taking advantage of Ned. He'll borrow things from him, but not return them. Steal his paper off of his front step. Be mean, be mean to him, but Ned Flanders is always just nice to him. Will not stand up for himself. Doesn't have a backbone. He's just foolishly nice. And I think... The creators of The Simpsons have nailed the stereotype of a Christian that's prevalent. We're supposed to be nice, almost foolishly, even stupidly nice. So nice that we're easily taken advantage of. Yet we find Solomon here, especially in these first five verses, fighting against that notion. Yes, Christians should be nice, but not so foolishly that we're easily taken advantage of. We should be wisely nice. When we think about that in the example of Jesus, Jesus was nice, wasn't he? He let the children come sit on his lap. He was nice to the woman at the well. He was nice to people. But he interacted with the Pharisees. Was Jesus always nice with the Pharisees? And then we remember when Jesus entered into the temple, 
And it was like a, a, a flea market in there. And did Jesus nicely go around and check out everybody's wares and go, ooh, that's a good price for that. No. He beat them. Pulled out a whip. He flipped over tables. Example of Jesus, we don't have a dead Flanders. We have somebody who is wisely nice. And, and, and Solomon structures his wisdom around finances. And that's really the, the main point here. But that's where often Christians can be taken advantage of. We are to be wise with our money. So Solomon is telling his son about getting caught up in unnecessary loans. So some, look, there may be some friends who come to you and they ask for help. Or you're known to be such a nice guy, you have people in the community who you don't know come up and ask that you'll co-sign a loan for them and with them. So he explains finances to his son. If you do this and you're putting yourself up as collateral, if you enter into this legal relationship as a co-signer of a loan, then when this other person defaults, then you are responsible for it. And so Solomon says, wisdom is you don't enter into those sort of relationships. Now, understand... As we talked about in Sunday school, this is a general principle. And it's not always meant to be applied to every situation. You, you may co-sign a loan for your child to buy their first car. I don't think that's a sin. You may have a longtime friend who, who is more family than a friend that you would trust in your life and they need some help and you help them. I don't think that's a sin. What Solomon is saying here is we have to be wise about our finances. Let wisdom lead the way. Not this idea, well, I just have to be nice to everybody. And you end up having a line of people waiting at your door for you to co-sign their line for, loan for. Be nice, but be wise. And Solomon's wisdom here, finances, is based upon two truths that are clear in Scripture. First, God wants us to be generous. This isn't a call for us to be stingy. God wants us to be generous. But he doesn't want us to gamble our money. The Old Testament commanded a culture of generosity. We read in Deuteronomy 15 that God tells his people to loan money to the poor freely, but to do it wisely. And every seven years, all debts in the nation were canceled and erased forever. Why this culture? Because God has been generous to his people. And how generous is he to his people? For God gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There is nothing more generous than God. No one can outgive God because God has given us his son. God is generous to his people, so he calls for us to create a culture of generosity. Even in a world of, of, of stupid finances and stinginess. So the wisdom is to be generous in the way that God's wisdom is leading at generosity. Not this wrong idea of being nice. Because being unwise about your finances is like gambling. And the Bible is clear about gambling as we see in passages such as 1 Timothy 6 and Ecclesiastes 5. Solomon says, look, son, you're to pursue this wisdom even if it means you lose some sleep. So what do we not want to be? We don't want to be foolish with our finances. We want to be wise about them, not stingy, but also not foolish. We want to be generous and kind, 
generous and kind according to God's standards, not our own. The next type of person we don't want to be is the lazy person. Look again at verses 6 to 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. I would imagine outside of Proverbs 6, we don't use the term sluggard very much, do we? And I like how the pastor says it. Was a sluggard? Think of the way syrup oozes slowly out of a bottle when it is cold. And that's a sluggard. Sluggish and slow and hesitant when he should be decisive, active, forthright. His life motto is, don't rush me. He's lazy. He always makes the soft choice. He loses one opportunity after another, after another, after another, day by day, moment by moment, until he lies there helpless in his wasted life. Wisdom is we don't be like this lazy person. We don't be like the one who sleeps in late in the morning, eats some lunch, lays out and take a nap, because eating lunch is worn him out, get up in time for dinner and sit around and do nothing until they go to bed that night. So we have passages such as 2 Thessalonians 3.10. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. That's a pretty, it's a pretty forthright statement by Paul there, isn't there? If you're not willing to work, then you shouldn't eat. And that's a mouthful for our day and age, isn't it? Again, not to go down the political side of it. We live in a day and age where people have found a way to work the system so they don't have to work, yet they can live really pretty good. They don't work so they can do what they want to, and they get money for living like that. I have a family who's done that. They've spent their whole lives living off of welfare. They figure out a way to work the system, and they had children, and they got more money, and they, and, and they at times lived better than my family did because they were lazy. And they found a way to work the system so they could do what they want to do, but they didn't have to work, and they got money for living like that. And Solomon says here, that's not wisdom. Matter of fact, Paul takes that wisdom, and he takes it a little bit further and says, not only is that unwise, that's not Christian. Listen to what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his, of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So Paul, taking this wisdom of laziness in Solomon and in the book of Proverbs says, if you're not willing to properly work to prepare for your family or to take care of your family, then you are worse than an unbeliever. Because there are hardworking unbelievers out there who are taking care of their families. So godly wisdom leads to a good work ethic. We do all things as unto the Lord. That's the work ethic of a wise Christian. We don't want to be like the sluggard. We don't want to be lazy. But I think if we're honest with ourselves and, and many of our sinful DNA, there's a sluggard deep inside of us. Maybe not every day, but there's that temptation that we want to be lazy and foolish. There are times we may find, we're looking at those people who've worked the system, we go, 
they've got it pretty good. They don't have to wake up in the morning and fight traffic down to Columbia to go to work and get yelled at by a boss for eight hours to come back home and, and deal with the, with, the, with the problems of home, go back to sleep and repeat the next day. They can sleep in as late as they want to, go around on Facebook and Instagram, watch what they want to on TV, slide out here to do this if they want to, slide over there to do this if they want to. The temptation is there for us to want to live that life. So what does Solomon say? What, what do we do with that temptation? He says, get off your rear, go outside, find an anthill, get on all fours, on your hands and knees, and watch the ant. It's fascinating, isn't it? Solomon doesn't say, he doesn't say go out there and put out resumes or go on LinkedIn or he says, get up, go outside, and watch the ant. Physically, there's something humbling about that position, isn't it? Because ants are these little, small, insignificant creatures, right? I would imagine at some point, some of you in your life took a magnifying glass and tried to light ants on fire. Please tell me I'm not the only one here to ever try to do that. But there are these little, insignificant creatures, Right? That when you see them get in the house, you, you stomp on it, you kill her, you put out ant killer. But God says, no, 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 take another look at them. Look at what I created. As we said before, all corners of God's creation contains his wisdom, even the ants. So what wisdom do we learn from watching ants? We learn three things. First, in verse 7, we learn inner motivation. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler. So there's no boss ant, right? There's no, there's no ant who's in charge standing over others giving orders. Ants don't have to report in to anybody. They don't, they don't have to clock in. They don't give a daily report. But has anybody ever seen a lazy ant? Has anybody ever seen an ant on a plate of grass, blade of grass laid back trying to get their suntan and get their bronze on? We've never seen a lazy ant, have we? Because a land, an ant has within itself all the motivation it needs to make something of its life, and it never lets up. So biblical wisdom is that we have motivation. We don't, we're not to need somebody standing over us say, get to work. Biblical wisdom is that God, through His Spirit, has put within us that motivation that we get up and we go to work. Second part is hard work. Verse 8, she prepares her bread in summer. Uh, I'm, I'm at that part of summer where I'm sick and tired of summer. Right? It is. I mean, it's just hot, it's humid, and I'm ready for the fall time. I'm going out having to mow the grass, even though it's on a riding mower, I just get hot and sweaty. But what do we see with the ants? Even under the hot sun, it scurries about and it gets the job done. Go home today. If you can stand it, Go outside, lay down, lay down a blanket, and have a picnic. Chances are, what are you going to see eventually? You're going to see ants. And they're going to start taking away your food. Grain of salt, grain of sugar, grain by grain, and then they're going to come back for your Cheetos, because everybody loves Cheetos, and they're going to take those away. They don't complain. They're not waiting. Ants are not above hard work. In fact, it seems they enjoy it. They don't mind a little sweat. 
They don't mind being a little sore at the end of the day. So biblical wisdom is that we're to be hard workers at wherever God has placed us, either at work or as a student. Wherever God has placed us in our lives, we are to be wise in having a good work ethic. We work hard for it. Third thing we learn from ants is they prepare for the future. In verse 8, she gathers her food and harvests. So not only is the ant working for today, but it's working for tomorrow. It doesn't, it doesn't get done and go, eh, I'm done, tired. Let me just see what tomorrow holds. Maybe, maybe something will good. Maybe something good will happen. No, it goes out and it prepares for next season of life. Ants prepare. We're called to prepare. That is, I don't think it necessarily means we have a, a basement and we stockpile <laughs> you know, toilet paper and and canned goods, right? But, but we prepare for what's coming tomorrow. We look past the end of our noses and say tomorrow is Monday, and day after is Tuesday, and day after is Wednesday, and we need to prepare for that. That's biblical wisdom. And I like how Ray Ortland summarizes that in application for us. He says, a Christian family should be like an anthill, everyone busily accomplishing something. A healthy church is like an anthill, everybody actively achieving together. Wise people love goals and strategies to leverage your presence into a better tomorrow. So we don't procrastinate. We get the job done and prepare. Wisdom is that we're not like the lazy person. We're like the ant. And the third type of person we're to avoid being is the worthless person. The summarize in verses 12 through 15. Yeah, I think one of the harshest things you can say about somebody is that they're worthless. Because what you're, what you're essentially saying is that they, there's not much of good in that person. But sometimes that label fits. Sometimes a person is worthless. As the shoe fits, they have to wear it. The Bible says some people are worthless. But who does Solomon say is someone who is worthless. Well, the Hebrew word here used means without benefit or profit or use. It's the same word that's used in the New Testament at times for the devil himself. So who is worthless according to Solomon? It's the devil and all people who resemble him. And this goes back to what we've talked about before. Evil is around us. Evil isn't a theory that's somewhere else. Evil people are around us. And what does Solomon say they are? says they are wicked. means they have no good, standard, consistent morals. They will go whatever way to get what they want. There's type of people who will be as nice as they can be to your face, ask you about how your mama's doing, and then as soon as you turn your back, they're going to try to wreck you if it benefits them. They have crooked speech. It means you can't trust a word that comes out of their mouths. They come knock on your door and say, hey, did you know the sky is blue? You want to push them aside to go outside to make sure that God has not changed his mind in the past hour and made the sky green or orange or some other color. They're known to gossip. Whenever you see them, you know that there's going to be some gossip from them. They enjoy seeing evil prevail. They want to see the world burn. But you know what the biggest sign is that somebody is wicked? Is that they sow discord. Because that's what he he says here. 
But you notice when he says later, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to the Lord. The last one is a summary of that person. And it's about somebody who sows discord wherever they go. They are a cancer. Wherever they go and whatever they touch, they're going to spread discord with them. You know that's what they do. In our ARP tradition, at the end of every Presbytery meeting and Senate meeting, we all stand up and we sing Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. God loves unity because we are his family. And he doesn't want dysfunction. He doesn't want discord. Matter of fact, it says that is an abomination to him. You want to know, you want to know one thing that God really hates? are those who sow so discord. That is somebody who's worthless. Who will come into the church and sow discord. Somebody who will claim to be a Christian and wherever they go, they're like a cancer and they're going to kill it. And the Lord says, that is not what you want to be. So if this isn't what we want to be when we grow up, then what do we want to be when we grow up? We want to be like Jesus, don't we? We want to be like our Lord and Savior. We want to be like our elder brother. We want to be like the one who so loved us that he gave up his own life for us. And what do we see in Jesus in this love? We see that this love changes us from eternity. We know where our eternal destination is, but it changes us in the here and now. Jesus loves us too much to leave us as we are. So he changes us. And it's in that love of Jesus that we are, that we are changed. That through that love and faith in Jesus, we are given this wisdom where we're no longer foolish with things. We may make mistakes with our money. Beth hates for me to go to the grocery store. Because she gives me a list of five things and I come home with 15 things. And when I'm going through the checkout line, I always see a candy bar or, or gum that I want, and it, and, it, and it kills her. We may do foolish things every once in a while with our money, but we're not known to be foolish with our money because we're becoming more like Jesus. And there's, there's no way we could be lazy when we're in Jesus. We realize he has called us to work. He's called us to glorify him in all we do. So we want to be more like Jesus even in how we work and there's no way in the world we would be those people who are so worthless we would come in and we would break up a church or we would break up a family or we would break up any sort of other community all for our own good. I think that's one of the most wonderful things about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It changes us for eternity but it changes us in the here and now and changes us in the here and now for the good of us and for the good of those around us. The world is a better place when we're not foolish. The world is a better place when we're not lazy. The world is a better place when we're not worthless. The world is a better place when we want to be more like Jesus. And that's wisdom. Let's pray together.